podcast that aims to find exceptional people, places, and things in eastern Iowa and beyond. I'm very pleased to introduce you all today to a dear friend of mine, Jonah Terry. Jonah is a photographer, videographer, visualist, and storyteller right here in Iowa City. He was born in Muscatine, Iowa, and moved to Iowa City when he accepted a job as a visual content producer with Sculpt, a digital marketing agency here downtown. Primarily self-taught, Jonah strives to root out and tell stories that work to correct preconceptions about the people and communities that he highlights. Hello, Jonah. Hi, thank you for having me. Thank you for coming. I was pretty interested to have you on the show. Uh, as a follow-up to our last episode, I wanted to talk to another artist who's maybe approaching art in Iowa City a little bit differently than Kelly, our most recent guest. So let's kind of talk about it a little bit. Tell me a little bit about the art that you pursue and what kind of art you make. So I'm uh, mostly a photographer. I like to highlight more of untold stories, kind of grittier ideas, I think. Um, like my, uh, I recently just finished a gallery called Kings and Queens, mm-hmm. where I highlighted some drag queens and drag kings. I kind of, the whole idea that came about that is um, I actually live right behind uh, Studio 13 in Iowa City. And after just hearing the constant thumping that came from that place, which I, I loved it because you could just hear everyone. They were just so happy. And it just really interested me because I kind of thought that I knew what it meant or what it was to be a drag king or a drag queen. Mm-hmm. But I, I knew that I probably didn't have a single clue about what that was like or, you know, I'd never been to a drag show before. Um, and then one day I decided to just walk in and ask if I could come in and, and shoot behind the scenes and, and tell this story. Um, and I ended up getting in that day. It was, it was pretty quick. I thought, it, you know, someone was going to be like, yeah, like we'll talk to you later or we'll get back to you. And they were like, yeah, sure. The drag Queens are like upstairs. And I was like, Oh God, like I, I am not even ready. Like I had one camera battery on me, but I decided to just go. Um, and I, like I said, I hadn't been to a drag show before that. I learned a lot about that culture and the people. And I think the, the important thing about that, that art was um, just kind of highlighting more of the people. Like I think I've seen a lot of photography done with the drag queens and their drag personas, mm-hmm. um, but not so much highlighting the, the people and the, the aspect of getting ready for that and what that meant for them and who, who those people were. For those who might not know, what is Studio 13? Uh, I actually recently came across Studio 13 just on Instagram because of some of the shows that they've been doing, but uh, educate us a little bit about Studio 13 and then maybe talk a little bit more about what you mean when you say you wanted to highlight the people. What was that experience like? Yeah, so Studio 13 is the drag bar in Iowa City. Um, I think it's probably one of the only ones in Iowa City. I think so. I think by highlighting the people, like I've always just kind of been interested in people in general. Um, I started out doing street photography and kind of just catching those mundane moments. And then I I think I've slowly started to tell more of like a photojournalistic narrative. Mm -hmm. Um, Because I do, like I said, like I think, I think we think, we know what a culture of people is like just because of media perception or maybe being there once or twice. Um, but I really wanted to get a deeper look into that. And I think that's mostly normally what I do. And what I say, highlighting people is really, really getting to know them. So I went in, 
um, kind of just shot fly in the wall style just around them. Um, and then later on after that, as I started kind of putting my gallery together, I started interviewing, um, some of the drag, the drag queens to kind of get a, a better idea of their stories and kind of the places that they, they came from, why they decided to do drag. Um, and then I, I just learned a lot about that culture. Like I think a lot of people think that if you're a drag queen, you're, you're gay. Um, but that, that wasn't always the case. I mean, if you're straight, you're transgendered, like it doesn't matter who you are as a person. I think drag is just kind of this fun kind of escapism for some people. Okay. Tell me a little bit more about how you choose which stories you want to elevate a little bit. You, you speak about this idea of correcting preconception. How do you decide which stories to tell? I think that's always a tough one for me, even, you know, after I've been doing it for a while. Um, and it takes a while because I haven't, I mean, I shot the Kings and Queens uh, photo series probably about a year ago. And I haven't done anything quite like it since. Um, but actually just last, this last week, I was just laying in bed and it hit me like, oh, like I, I, I always have a long list of stories that I want to pursue. Mm-hmm. None of them are really speaking to me though. But I, like I said, I was laying in bed the other night and for some reason, I don't know what it was. I just started thinking about strippers and I was, you know, like, I think, I think that's another culture we have a preconception about. Like we can always ask, like my first question with, with, uh, strippers is like, okay, well, why, why are you stripping? You know, I think that's a very interesting question. Um, and I think it does, I, I definitely have a style going into the projects I pursue. Um, I kind of like this, this gritty, I hesitate to say underworld-esque style, but I think it's just cultures that aren't just out in the open. Like I think they're, they're, they're hidden and you have to kind of pursue them. And the reason I choose that is because I think they're very interesting subcultures that aren't as widely talked about. So I'm trying to really like tell the stories and get that out there. Um, so more people kind of see those cultures. That's pretty interesting. And I feel like we learned a little bit about your approach to storytelling at more of a macro level when you're mm-hmm. trying to explore a subculture. The str- the photography that I'm more familiar with that you have produced is usually more focusing on individuals. Uh, you sort of, I think, self-identify as a street photographer. Mm-hmm. Tell me how you tell stories then at the micro level with an individual or maybe even a single photograph. Yeah, I think the importance the importance in street photography is either kind of telling a story through one image by creating a kind of relatability. Um, So maybe like a commute to work, like that's something relatable. That's something everybody does. But I think finding a beautiful, beautiful way to tell that visually is where kind of the street photography aspect comes in. Um, And I think the other end of that, the the two ends of street photography is just finding something so crazy that you never thought would ever happen out in public. Um, Oh gosh, I can't remember who the photographer was, but he he took a photo of a burning shoe in the middle of New York City. It was just on the sidewalk. There was a shoe burning 
and it, it's still like it's just ingrained in my brain because it's just such an interesting story and I think it leaves it off to uh, your brain kind of wonders too like why was that shoe on fire in the middle of the street like the other aspect of that too is just being there and I think that's kind of the 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 magic of street photography is like a lot of things happen around you but you have to be there at the moment that it happens um Another image that comes to mind is Joel Mayerowitz. There's this image, and I think it was shot in the Bronx, of a man. I think he's being attacked by a pit bull, actually. And he's just, like, trying to get this pit bull off of him. And the image is just so beautifully shot. Everything is centered. It's The symmetry is amazing. But it's just catching this moment of this man in a random pit bull. I don't know. It, it's, it's, it's really just about, like I said, being there and capturing that magic. Um, and then knowing that that might have been the only time that will ever happen. How do you balance the conflicting idea of observation and then intervention? Mm-hmm. If we were walking down the streets of Iowa City and I was being attacked by a pit bull, I would hope that you would help me get the dog off first. And I know that this is maybe kind of a cliche question, but I think it's one that photographers have to face pretty frequently particularly in the realm of photojournalism, depending a little bit on the subject you're treating. How do you approach that individually? That's a tough question. I, I think, and this is a question I, I ask myself quite a bit too. Like if I see an ambulance drive by, I, I always put myself in like, okay, if there actually was an accident that happened, would I shoot first? Would I like take the photo first? Or would I also would I would I intervene first? And that's that's a t- that's a very tough question for me. It's, it's very conflicting because I think as a photographer, you selfishly you want that moment, but as a human being, you know that you have to you have to be there for that person. So I haven't actually been faced with that that conflicting idea yet. But I would like to believe that I would intervene first and not worry about the photo. And maybe that's kind of an unfair question because I think it's maybe a little bit loaded. But I think that there's sort of a parallel question here in terms of how do you make that same decision between capturing a moment, maybe on a more personal level, and living through that moment. I know that some of the subjects that you have photographed have been partners of yours or you know, individuals that you presumably care pretty deeply about, how do you balance observation versus engagement, perhaps, instead of intervention? How does that work for you? Yeah, so when I started dating my girlfriend, this is a very, this is a very tough thing for me to kind of come to terms with because we obviously had intimate moments that I was capturing, but there was that moral dilemma of, is that for myself? Is that for us? Or is that for everyone else? And I think from the photography standpoint, that's for everyone else. <laughs> um, and I, I honestly think that's just coming from my generation of just no privacy whatsoever. Okay. Like we're not used to privacy. I'm very open about a lot of, a lot of things. And being a photographer, like I said, it's just, 
you want to create that image to share it with other people because you, you feel like you've captured this moment that's so human. You know that, and maybe, maybe it's just capturing a pure moment. I think that's what it was mostly for me. Um, it's just capturing this pure moment. And I don't think there's a lot of those left the way things have been going, you know, uh, politically and (laughs) like there's we need those moments we need these things to kind of not distract us but just remind us that humanity isn't always as bad as we perceive it to be and maybe that's just because I'm being cynical but sorry getting back to your question I uh kind of derailed there it was really hard for me because she she's a she's going into elementary ed so some of the images I was sh- shooting would not be very good for her uh, soon-to-be career. So she very respectfully asked me not to obviously put those photos out. But like I said, being a photographer, you, you shoot these images for other people as well. Um, and it, I mean, like it, I, I totally sympathized with her and I understood. And I had to make the very adult decision of not doing anything with those images and I'm actually very happy that I did mm-hmm. because now I have just this collections of collection of photos that is just for us and I think that's that to me is even more special than sharing that out but like I said it it took me a while to kind of get into that mindset and then realize that that was more special than sharing that with other people that sort of makes me wonder, in your opinion, who owns a photograph? If you take a photo, does it belong to the subject, to you as the artist, to the audience? I think on the on the more broad aspect of street photography, I think, and if you talk to pretty much any street photographer, they will defend that that is their photo they shot it they captured that moment till they die pretty much i mean they are they are pretty dead set like you're in public you've you've pretty much signed off your rights to um uh kind of objecting to that photo but i i think it it just depends because if you're telling the story from a photojournalistic lens i think it's it's you have to be very conscious about your subjects and the people that you're shooting because that's, at least for me, that's who I'm shooting for. I mean, I'm shooting for myself, but it's to tell their story to kind of get people to either empathize with them or kind of broaden people's views of that subset or culture. So I think... I think almost in any situation where I'm shooting, I feel like everyone kind of everyone kind of owns that image. I own that image. The person who's in that photo owns that image. And I think the viewer also has a, a responsibility to own that image. So we've taken the opportunity to talk a little bit about your approach to art, but I'd kind of be interested to learn a little bit about your development as an artist and really how you came to be an artist and 
what skills that has helped you acquire. Uh, maybe that's better stated as what media you choose to express yourself over. Because I know that you do photography, but I also know that you do quite a bit more than that. Mm-hmm. Help us understand what that journey was like and how that influences your development going forward. So it's really interesting because I was definitely... Um for 80 standards, a jock for a lot of my uh, high school career. Um, I slowly, my, my stepdad introduced me to uh, Photoshop in eighth grade. And I kind of fell in love with mostly, you know, every aspect of Photoshop that an eighth grader would like. Photoshopping my face onto Tron characters. Um, just really, really dumb things that I, I didn't think would actually shape my my career but about my sophomore year in high school I really really just dug into the Adobe suite um and and mostly in a graphic design sense like I just I just fell in love with graphic design um and I I I was curious one day and I was like god like I don't do homework like I just sit on the creative cloud all day like that's all I did um I was I was on the creative suite about 40 hours a week on top of like being in high school so you 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 definitely understand where my priorities were <laughs> but um I I definitely started in the design sense kind of started getting to illustration um slowly got into animation and somewhere in there photography came along naturally I feel like it would just be weird for me not to try and do that after you know kind of having a handle on a lot of other things but I definitely didn't think it was going to be my number one source of expression um I remember I took a Skillshare class uh by a photographer named Trash Hand um and he's a street photographer based out of Chicago and that that to me was just just a mind-blowing class like that that put photography up at the top of my expression list after I watched that class um because I realized I I think coming especially coming from a small town you think of a photographer you think of senior portraits you think of wedding photography you don't ever kind of think about this this uh side to photography of expression and art and kind of the social justice that can come with that depending on the story you're telling it's it's a very powerful medium um but like I said I I I don't not do the other mediums and I think the 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 question for me is and it's mostly project-based is what medium am I able to reach my subject or my viewer the easiest so I have a few projects that I'm working on animation-wise. I don't know if they'll ever come to fruition. I mean, that's the the uh, essence of being an artist. But I I really feel like that's um, the essential question is, does this work better as a photo series? Does this work better as a poem or a text? Does this work better as an animation? Um, so it's all... It's all subjective I think but I also think it's it's good as an artist especially now to be well-rounded 
Well, so now that you have a pretty well-rounded set of skills, how have you found that influence your ability to find work for hire and your ability to find work for yourself? Um, I think obviously being well-rounded, you have way more services to offer people. I mean, if you're just limited to photography, you're only going to get photography projects. But because I have a wide variety of, of skills, I'm able to bring in more graphic design projects. I have photography projects. I have animation projects. Um, so I think it's, it's definitely a little bit of a balancing act. Um, but just, just marketability, I think, is the big aspect there. But I think for personal work, it's a completely different kind of mindset. Because when I start a personal project, in most cases, I have to use all of the skills that I've acquired instead of just one. So so normally when I take a paid project, I usually only work on one subset of those skills. Um but one of my animation projects I've been working on requires audio and some videography and obviously some illustration. Um, so I, I like that too because it's it's just a really challenging a really challenging project. Um, so you kind of you kind of get this mix of everything, and I personally like when I'm just absolutely pissed off and I don't know what I'm doing because I can't figure it out. So I have to sit there for the next two hours trying to figure it out that to me is exciting and I think with a lot of the paid the paid gigs that I've been getting it's just a lot of a lot of repetition and not a lot of growth you mentioned that your various skill sets make you marketable but I'm kind of interested to know how you approach making money as an artist I mentioned at the top of the show that we had recently had a conversation with someone who deals in uh, more tangible wearable art as one of her primary mediums how do you approach that where so much of what you make is digitally based, mm-hmm. whether that's photography or animation, videography, et cetera? I think the the path of revenue that I've been looking at mostly is um, just having galleries and shows um, because I still think it's important in a digital age to still have something tangible. Mm-hmm. Um as far as the, the, the animation and stuff goes, I think the, the gallery would be mostly the way to go. And like I, I, I'm still trying to figure out the, the monetary value of all of that too. So I think that's always a question as an artist, um, especially if you're trying new things, is you have the one end of what's the path to creation, what's the story, what are you selling per se to the, to the, the audience, but then there's the other half of it of, okay, well, how am I going to get people to actually see this? Um, so that, that's definitely a question I'm still trying to answer myself. Um, but like I said, I think, I think, I think tangible things are, are an important aspect to, to art. So when I originally met you, you were interested in pursuing a career as an artist in what some might call a more traditional art center mm-hmm. or a more traditional hub of art and culture, basically bigger cities, Chicago, New York, etc. 
Tell me what was alluring about that. And then ultimately, you're still here in Iowa City. Mm-hmm. What changed? I think the thing that's alluring about all of those places is the fact that when you hear about other artists, um, it's always, oh, they're based out of New York or they're based out of L.A. So I think there's just this natural allure to those types of places. Um, and especially as a beginning artist, you feel like I have to be there to be a legitimate artist. And I think what I have slowly found out is that's not always necessarily true. Um, of course, if you move to a, a bigger city like New York, you'll have a lot of connections and there's a lot bigger of an audience for those types of things. But what I also found out is the stories that I've been telling are definitely accessible anywhere. It's just a matter of cultivating those stories. Um, and I think that's the important thing is just understanding as a young artist that it's more important about what you're doing as an artist and the work that you're putting out and not so much about being some being somewhere. And that again, like that was another thing that I really had to come to terms with. Um, because I thought it, it directly affected my talent. What drives you to keep making art? And what drives you to keep making art here in Iowa? All right, so what, what drives me is, is the stories. The stories that I've kind of chose, chosen, chosen. The stories I choose <laughs> to tell. Um, and photography, I think, is just the the way to to tell that story and I don't know I've always been a very visual person numbers confuse me I any anything of that kind of that sort just just I was never able to relate to um so I think the photography and and what drives me to do it is just the the visual side of things and the relatability to an image and I think it's interesting because even though you've never been in that environment, depending on what the story is, you still have a relatability to the people. And I, I think that's what ultimately drives me. It's just that, that human connection, no matter what, really. I mean, you can always empathize with someone. Um, and that's, that's the ultimate goal of my work. And I think, I think what drives me to, to continue to do art in Iowa is... I think it almost from a from a marketability standpoint kind of makes you stand out. Um and this could even go back to the previous question a little bit is if you're doing art in a place that isn't necessarily known nationally or or as popular to be doing art, I think that makes you unique. And another thing too, like I said, it's it's just there are stories everywhere. And I think it really is just a lot of time and research beforehand to find those stories. Um, but they're, they're definitely everywhere. What is the most rewarding part about telling some of those stories in such a visual way? I think the, the reward that I've found um, from doing these projects is I just love to see, A, the emotional reaction from the viewers... Um, 
and then B, the emotional reaction from my subjects. Um, when I had my Kings and Queens gallery, a lot of the, the drag queens and kings that I shot while I was at Studio 13 were there. Um, and they were just kind of commenting on the photos and you could just see that they were having kind of this emotional reaction to the works. Um, and like I said, what I, I think found I found even more interesting was people that I didn't, you know, wouldn't naturally assume to um, kind of attach themselves to those images were very interested in them. And you could kind of see them um, empathizing with, with those images. What's next for you? What's next for me? I'm definitely in the next few weeks uh, doubling down on this stripper idea. <laughs> I've, <laughs> I've been doing a lot of research. I usually do about five or six hours of research before I dive into a project. I'm probably only at it like an hour or two right now for the, uh, the, uh, stripper project. But, and that I, I would say five or six hours mostly just because those are things I feel like I have a pretty decent handle on. If I were about to go to a different country and you know, tell a story I had no idea about. That would probably be a few weeks worth of research beforehand. But, um, yeah, I think that's definitely it. I've been working a lot with, um, Andre Wright and the Born Leaders United brand. Um, yeah, I mean, I think it's just personal work and continuing to try and pay rent. So (laughs) that does actually make me want to ask one follow-up question. We talked a little bit about how you choose whether or not to share something that is intimate or personal. Mm -hmm. How do you decide what stories to tell when you run the risk of people jumping to conclusions about you or your work based on the communities you're highlighting Mm -hmm. or the subjects you're trying to treat? I think a lot of it is just really getting to a point where you don't care about that. I think it's, I think it's, about having a thick skin to what people are going to react and how they're going to react and just telling the story as purely and as naturally as you set out to tell it. If I go down this rabbit hole and I don't find what I'm looking for or it, it kind of takes a different turn that I wasn't expecting, sometimes they just won't happen. We try to position Command F as a platform for discovery. And I'm really interested to know who you would recommend our listeners go and check out. Who or what is something interesting that you've recently discovered? I think another important aspect as an artist is always discovering something new. Almost every day. I mean, I do a lot of, of research, whether it be other photographers um, or just different artists. I think it's it's very important to kind of have that as a visual bank to come back to. Um, some of my my influences are um, Joel Meyerowitz. He was a street photographer in the, the 60s, and he's actually still alive. He's like 80, but he looks really young. I don't know how he's doing it. Um, that's probably not relevant, but I think it's really interesting. Um, another one is Sally Mann, um, specifically her her family projects. Those are, those are very interesting images um, and just very candid images of her family. Um, 
and then I guess my last one would probably be Nan Golden. Probably uh, not safe for work. I should probably mention that one. <laughs> they're they're a little bit uh, a little bit more graphic, but I like and I kind of feel myself aligning with her style a lot more because she told a lot of stories of drug addicts and AIDS victims in the 80s and 90s. Um, so they're kind of like these grittier stories, but I think they're very, very important to tell, again, to kind of break open the veil of some of these these communities. If people want to hear or see more of your work, where can they do that? Um, you can follow me on Instagram at third.shift, or you can visit my website at third-shift.com. And if people specifically want to support the art that you make, how can they best support you? That is a great question. <laughs> I think um, I, I'm still looking at having a closing show at Rad for the Kings and Queens Gallery. Um, stay updated on that. I don't know when that's coming, but just I think the best way to support me is to kind of come out to the events or just reach out to me. I mean, I love to hear when people have seen my work and kind of had like an emotional response. Even if you don't like it, I would love to hear what you don't like about it. Um, I'm still in a place of vast growth. So any constructive criticism is definitely welcomed. As always, you can find the show notes for today's episode at command-f.com slash podcast slash six. We'll drop links to Jonah's handles in those show notes, as well as feature some of the artists that he pointed out. We'll include NSFW tags for those that you <laughs> need to be aware of. Uh, if you'd like to support our show, the two biggest things that you can do to help us out right now are one, share this episode with someone who should have heard it, but hasn't heard it yet. And two, Follow the link in the bottom of our show notes to leave a review in the Apple Podcast Directory or the podcast directory of your preference. Thank you very much, and we'll see you next time on Command F.